This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader the station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Live from everywhere USA, it's Fox Across America with Jimmy Fallon. Welcome to Fox Across America with Jimmy Fallon, but I am not Jimmy Fallon. I'm Ben Dominich sitting in for Jimmy Fallon today, uh, and it comes at the end of a very busy week, one with a lot of news to talk about today. We have some great guests uh, coming up who will be joining us soon, and we'll start off uh, talking about the economy and these terrible numbers uh, with uh, a, a number of different things taking away from this inflation boom uh, that really doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon with Ryan Young, who is a senior fellow with the Competitive Enterprise Institute uh, coming up next. We'll also have Ilya Shapiro joining us uh, late of the Georgetown Law Center for the Constitution uh, to talk to us about the unprecedented targeting that we're seeing of Supreme Court justices, which continued yesterday with protesters outside the home of Amy Coney Barrett. Personally, I think this is the biggest and, and worst story coming out of this week. But, of course, the rest of the media has been focused on this January 6th committee, which uh, did its primetime show last night. It was one that uh, I think you know included a lot of stuff that we already know because we've known it for a very long time. I think the fact that it took this long to have this kind of public committee hearing uh, is indicative of the fact that this was not something that was intended to be an immediate response. It was intended to be a made-for-TV event, even enlisting a former ABC News uh, producer to help uh, make the whole thing possible. And, of course, at the center of this uh, is Liz Cheney, someone who has been advocating for uh, you know, digging into basically every single one of her political opponents' uh, reactions to January 6th, either in the moment uh, or afterwards, in ways that seem a lot more to me like score settling than actually wanting to learn of any illegal activity. But you got to hear from her again uh, last night, and I want to I want to start with her. Let's uh, let's hear cut three. In our country, we don't swear an oath to an individual or a political party. We take our oath to defend the United States Constitution, and that oath must mean something. Tonight, I say this to my Republican colleagues who are defending the indefensible. There will come a day when Donald Trump is gone, but your dishonor will remain. You know, the interesting thing about Liz Cheney's role in all of this is that it certainly is something that seems a lot more focused on where she came from, really, as opposed to the state that she represents. When Liz Cheney went out and decided that she was going to, out of nowhere, run for Senate um, in Wyoming, she ultimately ran into the teeth of uh, Mike Enzi, a very nice uh, fellow, uh, senator who has you know, a long career, obviously, in the state and ultimately decided to run again. She had to withdraw. And at the time, she was accused of being a carpetbagger, someone 
who really hadn't spent a lot of time in the state, uh, who was basically a Virginia representative if she wanted to represent anybody. Uh, and this does seem to have been uh, a, an approach that she was using when it came to this committee, appealing to the D.C. area, the swamp area uh, media response, uh, which has to be considered as the likely future for her career. The impact that it's had on uh, her political standing uh, in Wyoming uh, has been significant and obvious. According to the latest poll, which was conducted on behalf of a super PAC that was supporting her rival, by, but by Tony Fabrizio, who is a respected pollster, uh, found her trailing her primary rival, uh, Harriet Hageman, uh, by 28 to 56 percent. Uh, she also uh, is someone who's so unpopular within the state that 71 percent of Republican primary voters say they will vote against her. It's not good to have 71 percent of the people saying that they don't want to uh, vote for you, that they'll vote for pretty much any other candidate. And I think that that's an indication of the fact that uh, this whole thing has really not played out in a way that benefits her. But let's take that and set it aside for a moment. If Liz Cheney really wanted to get at something that she thought was a threat to democracy, as opposed to just score settling or engaging in things that are likely to get you know gossip columnists paying attention, shouldn't she have spent the time, spent the focus looking at things that would actually be illegal. And this is the part that sticks out to me, because I don't think that that's actually what this committee was about. Uh, let's hear Jonathan Turley on this. Cut eight. What is it that they're trying to prove? Are they trying to prove that Donald Trump is a horrible person? You might get a majority on that uh, by the end of these hearings. Or are you actually trying to show that there was a crime that was committed? And that's where these interstitial disconnects really mount up. You know, the, there isn't a crime of omission for failing to call people back from the Capitol. Uh, it doesn't mean that you don't bear responsibility. It doesn't mean that you're not culpable in the moral sense. But the question is, are you trying to establish something legal or something political? And I think that the takeaway that we have to have, both from not just last night, but from everything that this committee has done all along, is that this is a political statement, not a legal one, which makes it a lot less responsible to invest such a significant amount of time in it. It suggests that there's nothing else that the Congress should be focused on. And, you know, frankly, this is all through the lens of the Democrats trying to change the priorities of people when it comes to the way that they vote in November. Liz Cheney has been doing the service of Democrats and trying to participate in this to, to raise it up in so many different respects. And I think that it really hasn't worked. You know, if, if you look at the priorities that the American people have very consistently, this is just not something that shows up on the list because they have a lot of other concerns. Not all of those concerns, by the way, are ones that will necessary, necessarily benefit Republicans in the fall, but certainly a lot of them will because you have monopartisan control in Washington, D.C. You have a group of octogenarian leaders in the likes of, of Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, and the rest, uh, who seem to be completely out of touch with people's priorities. Uh, and you don't have a good sense that that's going to change anytime soon. Tulsi Gabbard weighed in on this uh, just the other night. Let's hear cut 10. Whether you're talking about the mainstream media or you're talking about Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, or Congress, frankly, they don't, carry, they don't care about the real threats that we face domestically 
to our freedoms and our democracy. So instead, they're focusing on this. They don't want to deal with the real issues that Americans are struggling with every day across the country, uh, increasing inflation, rising gas prices, uh, increasing crime, open borders. The list goes on and on about the, the, the very real domestic issues uh, that we face. And those are all issues, of course, that not just Joe Biden, but Democrats as well, don't want to talk about because they don't actually have good solutions for them. Every solution that is out there completely reasonable things that they could do, whether it comes to energy, when it comes to the economy, when it comes to addressing the borders, et cetera. These are all policies that they don't want to do, not because they won't work, because they've been proven to work, but because that would offend the progressive left, the people who have taken over the policy debates within their party in ways that they find politically unpalatable. And from my perspective, that is completely an abrogation of their duty to us as citizens. Look, January 6th embarrassed a lot of people. It was something that I think the vast majority of Republicans and conservatives didn't like to see happen. But we also aren't going along with this fiction that our democracy was at stake, that the government was about to fall, that the guy with the horns on his head was about to become our new fearless leader and take over the Congress. This was not something that was going to happen. And that's because all down the chain, Everybody who had a job to do, from my perspective, uh, that would you know uh, actually put that election uh, to bed, uh, that would result in its uh, in its confirmation, they did their jobs. Now, I think there are a lot of people who failed in their jobs uh, a long time before that. Legislators, uh, people at the state level, people who could have done more uh, to prevent the kind of fraud that I think we've both seen implications for and seen proven in some instances that happened uh, throughout the 2020 election. But at the end of the day, the kind of of upset that Liz Cheney implies and that Democrats on the committee uh, are firmly in favor of suggesting was about to happen just wasn't about to happen. It's just not true. And because they've spent so much time focused on this instead of focusing on the issues that matter to Americans and to their pocketbooks, uh, to their priorities when it comes to November, I think that they are going to experience the consequences of it. They can talk about January 6th every day from now until Election Day, and and it will not, from my perspective, change any of the priorities of the American people who are experiencing the now. If you care about January 6th, that's fine. It's something that you might still be upset about. You might still have concerns about it. You might be concerned about the people who are still in jail today, whether they really deserve the consequences that they've been experiencing, especially compared to the consequences that were experienced by so many people who dealt uh, in so much damage uh, during the riots that preceded it during the Summer of Love, people who I think should have gotten a lot more heavy penalties thrown at them uh, for their participation in mostly peaceful and somewhat fiery protests. But this is the kind of thing that I think is not going to change the political dynamic. We're going to come out of it uh, with a, a, a situation where people still are going to vote based on the price that they are seeing every time they fill their car up at the pump, as opposed to the things that they hear from a corrupt media that has lied to them for so long. I'm Ben Dominich. I'm in the seat today hosting for Jimmy Fallon. I have no idea what kind of dangers he's uh, experiencing today. Uh, I have no idea where he is or what kind of trouble he's getting into, uh, though I will promise to bail him out when I eventually do find out out where he is. Uh, Coming up next, we'll be talking about this inflation number. It's horrible, the the economy and more. uh, And we'll have more on the issues that actually matter to the American people, which is not January 6th. 
I'm Ben Dominich. We'll be back with more of Fox Across America with Jimmy Fallon right after this. Common sense from a not-so-sensible man. It's the compassion. It's the, it's the dignity. It's the wisdom. It's the, it's the horse sense of the guy that gets you. You're listening to Fox Across America with Jimmy Fallon. All right, this one's for the fellas who want to tap the brakes on the aging process. How do you do that, Jimbo? We're talking about Nugenics Total T. Okay, every day that passes by is a day that you lose testosterone, which means less muscle, less energy, less get up and go in the bedroom. That doesn't sound any fun. But are you really ready to lose your shape, your muscle, maybe even in your energy? You don't have to, okay? You can slow it down with Nugenics Total T. Nugenics Total T, it'll boost free and total testosterone, and it'll help you get the old fire back at work in the gym in the bedroom how about it nugenics total t testosterone booster has testafin which will boost your testosterone you know the man hormone how about more of that you can try nugenics total t before you buy there's nothing to lose everything to gain now get a complimentary bottle of nugenics total t when you text 231-231 and enter the keyword jimmy text now you'll get a bottle of nugenics thermo x the newest and most powerful fat incinerator ever with key ingredients to help you lose fat fast and get lean fast. It is absolutely free. Your complimentary sample available to you if you text 231-231 and enter keyword Jimmy. It's 231-231 and you enter the keyword Jimmy. Texting enrolls you in a recurring automated text messages. Consent not required to purchase. Message and data rates may apply. And we're back on Fox Across America. I am your host for the day, Ben Dominic, sitting in for Jimmy Fela. Uh, we have uh, a guest coming up uh, in uh, right now who is from the Competitive Enterprise Institute, a senior fellow there, Ryan Young. Ryan, thanks for taking the time to join me today. Oh, Ben, thanks for having me on. So I want to talk to you about these numbers. Uh, they seem very, very bad in terms of what we saw uh, from uh, the consumer price index today, uh, you know, obviously this has been a recurring problem, and at, at a certain point, your eyes kind of glaze over with how bad people see uh, the numbers in front of them. Uh, give us some perspective historically on the numbers that we're seeing today. Sure, um, we're looking at a forty-year high again. <laughs> this is about the third month in a row that that uh, distinction has been set. But the thing is, though, even though the CPI headline number has gone up uh, from last month from 8.5% to 8.6%. If you look a little deeper, it looks like inflation might have peaked and is just starting to edge down. The core inflation rate went down from 6% to 5.9%. Mm-hmm. You know, this is one of those things where I think, you know, a lot of people are concerned about this from the perspective of real wage growth and what we've seen in terms of decline uh, on that front. What do you see in terms of the way that people are being most affected by uh, the inflationary pressures that we've seen within the economy? Well, the, the sharpest increases actually are not inflation at all. Uh, we're seeing that energy prices mm-hmm. uh, are up over the last year over 30% compared to only 86 for the for the CPI as a whole. Uh, that's because the CPI actually does a pretty lousy job of measuring inflation because that's just uh, the supply of money, how fast that's growing relative to the amount of actual real output. Um, what we're seeing with higher uh, food and energy prices, our supply and demand factors, bad policies causing shortages, Putin's invasion of Ukraine, none of those affect the supply of money, which means none of them affect inflation. They're separate issues with separate policy solutions. 
Um, so the CPI is doing a pretty lousy job of covering it, which is why, even though CPI went up, it looks like actual monetary inflation, which is the big headline issue right now, may have peaked and is just starting to go down. But no matter what, it's going to be with us through until at least next year. In terms of those energy prices that you mentioned, uh, the experience for many Americans is terrible. I'll just quote from our Fox coverage here. Energy prices rose 3.9% in May from the previous month. They're up 34.6% from last year. Gas, on average, is costing 48.7% more than it did one year ago, 7.8% more than it did in April. In all, fuel prices jumped 16.9% in May on a monthly basis, pushing the one-year increase to a stunning 106.7%. Every time people go to the pump, every time that they're paying uh, their energy bills, if they are on uh, if they're uh, functioning on on gas or if they're uh, looking at uh, just the, the dollars amounts that are coming out of their household toward these energy prices, they're experiencing uh, really a, a painful situation uh, and one which, of course, you know, uh, tracks into all these other costs. It's not like you can just not go to your job. It's not like you can just uh, not, you know, place these uh, the orders that people need in order to function. Uh, in terms of the Biden administration's policies on on energy, uh, what are some of the steps that they have in front of them that they could be taking to turn this around and are just choosing not to do? The easiest one to take would be to repeal the Jones Act of 1920. That's basically a Buy American shipping law that has had the effect of tripling to quadrupling a lot of domestic shipping costs. Uh, to the point where it's actually cheaper for a lot of oil refiners on the East Coast to import oil from places like Russia Mm -hmm. and the Middle East instead of just shipping it over from New Orleans or Houston. Um, That law is a century old. It has to go. Um, That's the easiest thing they can do. Another thing is offer tariff relief. Um, Another biggie that's causing a lot of uncertainty is the fact that they just issue and then yank permits for energy exploration and exploiting new resources that are proven to exist. Um, That kind of uncertainty, especially when you're talking about multi-year investment projects, even if Putin's invasion is what first caused prices to spike, those bad policies and that uncertainty is why gas prices are likely to stay high for a while. And and again, none of this has anything to do with inflation because none of it has to do with the supply of money circulating in the economy. But those price increases still hurt. You know, they they absolutely do hurt. And one of the things that I think is Unfortunate is that we're living through an experience right now where American energy policies uh, just don't seem to have any hope of of changing anytime soon. If there's an outcome in November uh, that elects uh, a lot of people who would, would, would like to see either a return toward more energy independence or perhaps the policies in place that you're in favor of, is there something that they can do to pressure the White House uh, to take some of these steps? Because they'll still presumably be dealing with the, the same players within this administration who've been so resistant. Um, I think poll numbers are going to do that job much more than any composition of Congress. The mm-hmm. question is, will they listen to those poll numbers? Because inflation right now is the top issue for most Americans. Um question is, is the administration going to catch on that inflation is a monetary issue and let the Fed do its job and then address the other price increases, such as energy, uh, with the right market-oriented solutions like opening up exploration, reducing trade barriers like the Jones Act and related policies? 
One I'm la- not optimistic. One, yeah, I'm not optimistic either, Ryan. One last question before I let you go. Obviously, you saw that admission uh, uh, just recently from Janet Yellen that she got uh, the inflation question wrong. Uh, do you think that uh, more people who are big players within our economic policy in America should be willing to admit when they're wrong? I do. I think the country would benefit from a lot more public examples of humility. Even very <laughs> smart people like Janet Yellen, who's a very accomplished economist, if she got something wrong, she's setting a good example and that, helping to make things right again. So I that's think we even way more, more unrealistic that. an expectation, I say, uh, Ryan, uh, than, than any of your other uh, uh, predictions. Uh, Ryan Young, Senior Fellow with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Thank you. I'm Ben Dominich. You are listening to Fox Across America. I'm in the seat for Jimmy Fallon. It's the morning show that uh, overslept Fox Across America with Jimmy Fallon. And we're back on Fox Across America. I'm your host for the day, Ben Dominich. And look, I tell you, the most important story this week uh, by far is not this huge uh, inflation number. It's not the energy price uh, crisis that we are facing currently. And it certainly is not the made-for-TV January 6th committee, which is on the airwaves on other networks uh, and on Fox, of course, as well, but a made-for-TV production. It is, from my perspective, this unprecedented targeting of Supreme Court justices that is playing out in front of us uh, with the very real attempt to assassinate uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh and potentially his family. Protesters were out in front of Amy Coney Barrett and her family's house just the other day, uh, and uh, this doesn't seem to be getting the kind of reaction you'd like to see from Capitol Hill or from the White House. Joining me now is Ilya Shapiro, uh, most recently the former executive director of Georgetown Law's Center for the Constitution and author of Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations, and the Politics of America's Highest Court. Ilya, thanks for taking the time to join me today. Good to be with you, Ben. And I thought you were going to say the biggest story was was my embrolia, which pales in comparison, indeed, to what's going on at the Supreme Court. <laughs> I will be talking to you about your embrolio. Don't uh, don't you uh, uh, miss out on it? But I have to t- I have to ask you about this because to me it is just it is amazing to me that something like this could happen and not be uh, the most prominent story that's on the front page of the New York Times and the like, instead getting you know a tiny little bit of attention and then and basically forgotten about. What was your reaction when you first heard about what happened this week? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, a, a lot of us who comment on, who write about the Supreme Court and judicial politics, uh, when we were writing op-eds after the leak that this is a significant uh, attack on the Supreme Court, we, we were seen as Cassandras or, or partisan or, or something. And uh, look, it's not getting better. I mean, these are real threats, not, you know, words are violence, campus politics type uh, Alice in Wonderland re-semantic rewording of the meaning of words. This is real physical attempts at assassination and intimidation. Um, uh, You know, it needs to be headed off at the pass. And what we're seeing is complete contrary to that. Silence from the White House. Nancy Pelosi saying everyone's protected. Uh, and the police and Merrick Garland, federal officials, uh, not arresting the protesters who are clearly violating uh, both federal and state law. So um, this is not good. And if the Supreme Court itself, uh, if the investigation doesn't make headway, if they don't release the Dobbs opinion for that matter quickly, I mean, it's only spiraling uh, more and more out of control. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Nancy Pelosi's comments on that. Let's uh, hear that. Share it with the listeners. That's cut 19. 
But this is about security for the justices. An armed man showed up near Justice Kavanaugh's house to try to... They're working together on the bill that the Senate will be able to approve of because that's what... We can pass whatever we want here. We wanted to be able to pass the Senate. So I don't know what we're talking about because evidently we haven't seen what the debate is. And not debate, but what the language is. It may not be a bill, but nobody is in danger over the weekend because... So it's okay, Ilya. Nobody's in danger. I mean, this seems everything's totally fine. This is this is normal from Nancy Pelosi's perspective. Why are they treating this as if it's no big deal? Well, the the first of all, the the progressive uh, wing of the party, which is is driving the boat here, uh, like the mob action, like the intimidation, thinks that. Uh, a decision overturning Roe v. Wade is illegitimate. The whole court is illegitimate because of Trump and Bush and all the rest of it and Kavanaugh. Uh, and so any means are justified in trying to stop or prevent or protest. Uh, and at the same time, the, the latest tactic is holding this bill that was passed unanimously in the Senate to provide more security to the justices, uh, holding it hostage for gun control and other unrelated uh, legislation on their wish list. It's really nasty stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I I wanted to circle back to the question of whether these protesters are doing something that's clearly illegal. You said that they are. Uh, is there something that can be done by other officials within uh, kind of the hierarchy here? We've seen, you know, responses from officials in both Maryland and Virginia, you know, on this question. You know, if Attorney General Merrick Garland isn't standing up, if the White House isn't standing up, are there steps that can be taken to increase the bubble, increase security around these justices, given that this doesn't seem to be going away, that you saw them back in front of Justice Barrett's house just the following day, as opposed to any kind of pullback in the wake of this assassination attempt? Demonstrations meant to harass and intimidate judges are illegal under the laws of Virginia, Maryland, which is where all the justices live, uh, and, uh, and, and federally. Uh, so there could be arrests. Um, in terms of securing the bubble and increasing uh, security, and the reason that the Kavanaugh uh, would-be assassin uh, would stop was because of the presence of uh, marshals, which, you know, before the dog plate, that wasn't the case. It's not like you had uh, armed police permanently outside uh, the justices' homes. Uh, so even taking that small step did, uh, did apparently deter this would-be assassin. And the bill that's now stalled in the House would provide more resources for that. I'm told that in the Supreme Court itself, and we've gotten reporting from within the court that it increased tensions, mistrust among the justices, et cetera. Uh, Security-wise, they've apparently put cots in that basketball court on the top floor, the highest court in the land, it's called, because the, the, the Supreme Court police and the marshals are uh, spending all their time there. They're you know, double-shifting and hardly going home, and they're really uh, overextended. So I think uh, this is something that uh, both in terms of providing more resources that the bill and Congress would do, and uh, using existing laws uh, to, uh, to to go after the the intimidators. Mm-hmm. One last question before we get to your own circumstances. Uh, the I think a question that's on a lot of people's minds uh, is that point of you know why hasn't the court just released the decision? If it's if it's close to being done, if it's if it was already close to being done when the leak happened, even if uh, you know that's an older version of uh, of the opinion. You know, why not press ahead with it under the, you know, assumption that it would 
create a little bit of release for this, that it would allow you know a, a little bit of a return to normalcy. Is there a reason from your perspective why that hasn't happened yet? Well, there's a few things uh, that, that might be going on here. First, uh, even if the Alito draft that leak is substantially complete, it hadn't yet incorporated comments from uh, colleagues, both those who are in the majority and those who would be in the dissent. That's typically uh, what a majority opinion does. It'll respond to the dissent. Maybe you know, Presumably there would be a more originalist concurrence by uh, Gorsuch and Thomas. I don't know if Alito would want to respond to that. Whatever Roberts might be cooking up in terms of a, uh, a so-called moderate decision that uh, you know, apparently no one uh, is going to join other than him. Uh, all of that dynamic being hashed out. So it does take a while to finalize an opinion. Uh, and then um, perhaps the dissenters are slow walking it. They're, you know, uh, they're seeing no, uh, no reason to accelerate their writing of the dissent and get this opinion out. Maybe um, uh, it's, uh, you know, I, I hear there's a lack of, lack of trust among the justices and, mm. and, and that could be part of it. It, it also could be that uh, there's a fear that uh, once Dobbs is finally released, there's going to be chaos, and it might impede the release of further opinions. So counterintuitively, uh, some on the court might be thinking that we should still hold it to the end because after that uh, is chaos, and we want to release all the other terms' opinions first. So a combination of all of those things. So uh, this uh, was a big media week for you personally uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, I'm not sure I've ever seen someone kind of documenting in real time uh, on the pages of the Wall Street Journal uh, the the process that they have gone through when it comes to uh, your own academic freedom, uh, the investigation that Georgetown uh, did in terms of looking at uh, your Twitter comments about the nomination that Joe Biden put forward as, as president to the Supreme Court. Uh, I want you to uh, summarize it for our listeners who may have uh, forgotten a little bit about it and, and tell them a little bit about what you learned through that process. Yeah, you know, don't, don't all of us uh, uh, document all of our uh, <laughs> professional news in the national newspapers and, and national TV? Uh, yeah, it's been kind of a surreal experience. So um, uh, at the end of January, as I was about to transition from the Cato Institute, where I had spent nearly 15 years, to the Georgetown University Law Center to become executive director of the Center for the Constitution, uh, news of Justice Breyer's retirement uh, leaked. And I was commenting all that day, putting out statements, doing my usual thing that I did uh, at Cato as a, as a Supreme Court and constitutional expert. Uh, and late that night, when I got back to my hotel room, uh, I engaged in what is not a best practice, which is doom scrolling on Twitter right before going to bed, uh, and was upset about, uh, continued to be upset, nothing that I hadn't said before, about uh, the president uh, restricting his candidate pool by race and sex. Of course, he said uh, he would appoint a black woman. Uh, reiterating his campaign promise. Uh, and I said, well, well look, uh, I kind of thinking all the possible contenders, I thought Sri Srinivasan, the chief judge of the D.C. Circuit, uh, Justice Designate uh, Jackson's colleague uh, on, the, on, on that court, uh, would be the best pick if I were a Democratic president. But because he's not uh, a black woman, he's an Indian-American Indian immigrant, as it happens to be, uh, he, he's not considered. In fact, nobody else uh, could be considered uh, if they... If they uh, weren't a, a black woman. And I, I didn't like that. Uh, and I, I criticized that. And there was a firestorm uh, that erupted the next morning. Uh, I was eventually onboarded by Georgetown, uh, pending and suspended uh, with pay, pending investigation into whether my social media comments violated harassment and anti-discrimination policies. 
it took uh, this uh, sham investigation four months to determine not that, oh, yeah, we have this free speech policy. I guess that's protected. No, no, no. That would have been too simple. It took them four months to realize that I was not an employee when I tweeted and so not covered by these policies. <laughs> and so last Thursday in the Wall Street Journal, I celebrated my technical victory, jurisdictional victory, um, and said that, you know, in my classroom, everybody will have the right to free speech, academic freedom, due process, equal opportunity, et cetera. But then when uh, the report from the diversocrats hit my uh, email inbox, the Office of Diversity, Inclusion, Equity, and Affirmative Action, kind of an Orwellian name, yes. uh, my lawyer and I and my wife, who's a better lawyer than any of us, went through this report and digested it and considered it and came to the only conclusion possible, which is that they were setting me up for a fall. Uh, they, were, they were applying their policies in a way that basically said, in the future, anything I write or speak, if that offends someone or someone claims discomfort, then that would create a hostile educational environment and I'd be subject to discipline. I, I literally would not be able to do the job that I was hired for. And so I had to resign, put to the pages of the Wall Street Journal again this past Monday, uh, released a four-page resignation letter detailing uh, the, the law school's empowering of this uh, illiberal mob uh, sitting in a heckler's veto for, for speech, uh, and away we went. You know, it, it really does seem to me, Ilya, like the question emerges, can you have any voices like yours in these campus environments anymore? Because if someone like you, in the, with the stature that you have, the respect that you have, um, if, if, that, if they're going to put someone like you in that position – then can there really be any place within the halls of academia in this particularly anti-free speech moment uh, for people who are advocating for a classroom that works on those principles? Um, at Georgetown, I'd have to say no, and at some other places as well. We've seen the scandals at Yale Law School, for example, just this past semester. Um, at some places, some places are better than others. Academia as a whole, certainly there's a great rot. And I'll tell you, and I want to be clear, because uh, some of your listeners might think, well, this is, you know, campuses, universities have long been, you know, left-wing bastions. This is nothing new. I tell you, this is not about the ratio of liberal to moderate to conservative professors for students. I was, when I was in college 25 years ago, when I was in law school 20 years ago, I don't think those ratios have shifted all that much. That's not the point. It's about administrators kowtowing mm -hmm. uh, to a radical, illiberal mob that, that uh, allows a book's no dissent from a rigid ideological orthodoxy. It's an extreme chilling effect. It's an extremely toxic environment that uh, goes against any educational mission. We talk about speaking the truth, debating ideas, all of these uh, sorts of things. So you ask me, can anyone survive? I mean, I, I don't know. The, 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 the tendencies, the trends are going in the wrong direction. Certainly at Georgetown, this was a shot across the bow of, of anyone who would, who would uh, uh you know, engage in, in wrong speak or wrong think. Already, there are like the 150-member faculty of the law school. I think there's three and a half non-progressives. I would have made it four and a half. Uh, and uh, that's too many, yeah. uh, apparently. So I'm, it, it, I'm it, pessimistic it, about that institution. But really, I'm not addressing, uh, you know, the, the radical left or the illiberal mob. I'm addressing people who either haven't been paying attention or think that they're just isolated incidents or that, Nothing's changed. The academia has always been this way. Mm -hmm. uh, something definitely has changed, and it's accelerated in the last few years under COVID and, and post-George Floyd. That, that heckler's veto where administrators are scared of the mob, 
um, is su- just such a damaging has such a damaging effect to not just academic freedom, but the ability to be able to talk to each other. Uh, thankfully, Ilya, you are not leaving. You are not leaving the fray. Uh, tell us what you're doing next, briefly. I'm joining the Manhattan Institute, a, a wonderful uh, think tank policy organization based in in New York, uh, as their director of constitutional studies, which is an area uh, that uh, they, they've been looking to get into, but but haven't focused on. And so. I'm, I'm joining a great group. They make a lot of salient and sometimes counterintuitive points about policy. Um, uh, looking forward to it, uh, working mostly from home, but we'll be in the arena uh, all over the place and certainly uh, talking not just about free speech and cancel culture, although that's now part of my so-called lived experience, but generally uh, mm-hmm. constitutionalism. And, and where we go from here at the Supreme Court. Well, Ilya, we certainly are happy that you can stay in the fight uh, and that you'll you'll have a classroom of the country now as opposed to confined to Georgetown. So think about it that way. Ilya Shapiro, uh, he is the author of Supreme Disorder, uh, which you should check out. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you, Ben. Take care. I'm Ben Dominich, and you are listening to Fox Across America. I'm not Jimmy Fallon, but I will be back right after. The critics have spoken. Well, that was different. Yep, lousy, but different. You're listening to Fox Across America with Jimmy Fallon. I'm Ben Dominich. You're listening to Fox Across America. Just a quick thought on what we just heard from Ilya Shapiro. I think that one of the things we need to put into perspective here is a point that he made about how different things are now versus what they used to be in the past when it comes to college campuses and academic freedom. In the past, you had a situation where even if there was a massive cohort of left-of-center students on campus and left-of-center academics who were inhabiting the halls, You did not have the buy-in from the administration that is so critical when it comes to determining campus policies, determining who actually gets to have a voice within these contexts. That's something that's changed, and it's changed intentionally. It's it's not something that's just happened organically. The left has been pushing for it and funding that change for a long time in order to get to a point where they can drive anybody who believes not just in academic freedom but in any other form of human liberty outside of the realm of conversation and polite society. It is part of the overall attempt to control the public square. I'm Ben Dominich. You're listening to Fox Across America with Jimmy Fallon. We will be back with our second hour right after this. Live from everywhere USA, it's Fox Across America with Jimmy Fallon. And we're back on Fox Across America. I'm your host for the day, Ben Dominich. Uh, Jimmy Fallon is off getting into trouble, hopefully involving uh, some over-the-top Americana. I'm envisioning screaming bald eagles, ladies in bikinis, and giant tanks. Uh, It's one of these things that really does frustrate you when you are an observer 
of the way that media confronts uh, issues that they don't want to deal with. And that is the way that they have responded this week to this incredible development regarding the treatment of Supreme Court justices in Brett Kavanaugh and uh, Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, the targeting of them is something that you would think would be not just you know national news that would be on the cover and at the top of the hour you know on every station, uh, something that would attract the criticism and condemnation of both parties quite easily, but that it would also be something that the media would turn to as indicative of the overall problems that we have in this country that, you know, in many ways serve as an indictment of uh, conversation, of, of the toxicity that we have, uh, the uh, a- the animated kind of nature of our discussions today not being what we want them to be when it comes to our political health. But instead, they have gone in the opposite direction. It's basically the same attitude that they had toward the summer of love surrounding George Floyd. This is just what happens, and you have to be used to it. Uh, Let's go back uh, in time to March 2020 when you had uh, Senator Chuck Schumer in front of the Supreme Court saying this. Cut 16. I want to tell you, Gorsuch. I want to tell you, Kavanaugh. You have released the whirlwind, and you will pay the price. You won't know what hit you if you... Go forward with these awful decisions. Now, keep in mind the context of this. This is not Chuck Schumer doing something lightly. He is doing this in a determined manner. It was echoed, by the way, of course, by many other members of his party. Uh, Elizabeth Warren has said uh, things along these lines uh, more recently. And Mitch McConnell uh, responded to this several days ago when the news initially came out uh, from what happened as as regarding this attempt to assassinate uh, Brett Kavanaugh. That's cut 17. This is exactly, exactly the kind of event that many feared that the terrible breach of the court's rules and norms could fuel. This is exactly the kind of event that many worried the unhinged, reckless, apocalyptic rhetoric from prominent figures toward the court going back many months and especially in recent weeks, could make more likely. One of the things to understand about the way that Washington works politically is that there has not been a, an ever-present force for security around these justices or their families. This, this type of security is not normal for them. They live in the communities there. They have neighbors. They have friends. Their kids go to school. And they don't have you know people riding along with them who are carrying guns or the like. That's because in America we have confidence and we have faith that this is something that would receive bipartisan condemnation, that it would be viewed as unacceptable, and that there would be an immediate and severe response from government against illegal activity along these lines attempting to intimidate the members of the highest court of the land. That hasn't happened, and the reason it hasn't happened is because of attitudes like Whoopi Goldberg on The View that this sort of thing is just what you should expect. Cut 18. In this climate, don't we all have to, like, take a beat 
and really pay attention from both sides because we both are guilty of it. Both sides are guilty of doing this, of speaking, and then some crazy stuff happens and you're reminded that there's folks out there who are, you know, who are listening to what you say. There are consequences to what you say and you should be more careful. You know, I would like to see people more careful about what they're saying, but to say that this is something that happens on both sides is just not accurate. It was not some supporter of Ted Cruz who tried to gun down Democrats practicing baseball just a few years ago. It is not supporters of the right that were targeting Sonia Sotomayor or uh, or Justice Kagan or any other member of the Supreme Court uh, over decisions that they have participated in in the past. There were not similar targeting attempts made around the Obamacare decision or the Heller decision or any of these other decisions that have had enormous import for the future of the country. But when this abortion decision was leaked in a way that was unprecedented, not just a violation of the court's internal policies and practices, not just something that ran afoul of everything that they've put in place over the years, but something that really horrified those who want these justices to be able to work together, who want a third branch of government that actually functions considering how terribly the others have failed. This was something that changed the environment around all of these different attitudes about abortion in a way that seems to be a continuation, if not a culmination, of everything that has shifted on that ground in the past decade or more. You have seen the extreme rhetoric used by supporters of Planned Parenthood and others who have gone out there and said that no longer are we going to be about safe, legal, and rare. No longer are we going to be about, you know, uh, suggesting that abortion is something that is, you know, morally difficult and that needs to be, you know, dealt with in, in terms of a woman and her doctor and the like. Instead, it's shout your abortion time. Instead, it's, you know, these performances in the streets. It's these protesters that are engaged um, in shouting, you know, just as much as, as you've seen shouted on any other issue. They've taken this issue away from being one that could have any kind of bipartisan reasonableness about it, where there were centrist Democrats on the issue, where there were pro-life Democrats on the issue as recently as the uh, passage of Obamacare, uh, who legitimately tried to include things within it that would prevent the taxpayer funding of abortion. Instead, Joe Biden, someone who had previously run saying that Roe versus Wade was questionable, that he was not in favor of taxpayer-funded abortion, came out in favor of getting rid of the Hyde Amendment during the 2020 campaign, running perhaps the most extreme candidacy on abortion that we have ever seen in American history. And I'm saying that including Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Look, at the end of the day, what we've seen is a sort on this issue that is putting the lives of these justices at risk and not not only is the media you know ignoring it it's they are it's as if they are actively looking to find other things to talk about so that they don't have to deal with this ever present threat cut 20 from senator lindsey graham if uh, mcconnell had gone to the supreme court and called out two liberal justices by name because he disagreed with it what they were about to do on a particular case, and somebody on the right tried to 
kill a liberal judge, it would be on the front page of every newspaper in the country. I couldn't walk three feet in the hall on Capitol Hill without somebody sticking a mic in my face. Now, one reporter has asked me about, what do you think about the idea somebody may have tried to kill Judge Kavanaugh last night? The double standard in the media is uh, appalling and dangerous. And the president of the United States is missing an opportunity here to lead the country to a better way. Joe Biden ran as a candidate who would supposedly bring the country back together. A return to normalcy was what the media promised us. Instead, he has been one of the most divisive presidents when it comes to culture war issues that we have ever seen in the history of the country. There's a quote from David Mamet in his most recent book where he writes, The priests of our new idolatry are the politicians and their non-governmental-like who have discovered the old secret of power gained through fear of the mob. They want this mob to happen, as Ilya Shapiro said in the last hour. They want that type of mob presence. They welcome it. They are fine with it. It's not just that they want to lie to you and say that nobody's in danger. It's not just that they want to pretend that they haven't said the things that they've said. They want that mob presence there because they believe that it actually does benefit them that it's something the media will ignore and turn away from, that they will say that it is mostly peaceful all the way up until the point where someone comes across the country, shows up blocks away from where Justice Brett Kavanaugh and his family live, where his kids play, where the people who are in their lives know them as friends and neighbors and threaten them in a way that is unprecedented in terms of targeting the court. The nation needs to respond to this. And the nation needs to respond in ways that start at the top. And instead, what we get is Joe Biden going on Jimmy Kimmel and suggesting that if the justices rule the way that every indication is that we have at this point that they will, that there ought to be many revolutions across the United States of America. This is how far that we've fallen from the kind of promise of unanimity, of bringing together anybody that we have uh, on the Democratic side who claims for that mantle going forward needs to respond to why they haven't stood up and fought back against this at this time. I'm Ben Dominich. You're listening to Fox Across America. I'm not Jimmy Fallon, but we will be back with more right after this. Critics are calling it the funniest show on the radio. I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown. This is Fox Across America with Jimmy Fallon. I almost had it. It's clear that if, in fact, the decision comes down the way it does and these states impose the limitations they're talking about, it's going to cause a mini-revolution. They're going to vote a lot of these folks out of office. That was President Joe Biden appearing on Jimmy Kimmel the other night, uh, talking about the reaction as he sees it to what could potentially be coming down from the Supreme Court. And I want to talk for just a moment about whether he's right or not about that, it does seem to me that there will be an inevitably a, a reaction from the American people uh, as it relates to uh, this issue. But that's not going to be the only issue that they're reacting to. And I think that a lot of the people who are going to be reacting 
to the abortion decision are going to be people who would already be voting for Democrats anyway. If their priority is uh, that social issue, it's something that they probably would have seen as already indicating that they ought to vote for Democrats, regardless of the situation that's going on around them in the country. And for many of them, especially those you know wealthier white liberals, they've been insulated from the downturns that we've seen in terms of of uh, the economy, in terms of inflation and the like, uh, they don't see it the same way that so many working families across the country do. What they also don't see as indicative of a problem for America to face is the issue of crime. We've seen in the last uh, week, uh, you know, a number of of things happen when it uh, comes to developments of crime and treatment of uh, the the candidates uh, in particular in San Francisco where progressive district attorney Chesa Budin was recalled in a 60-40 landslide this week. One of the things that was interesting about that was that if you looked at San Francisco uh, and you and you looked at the different maps of, of what was going on there, what you found was that there were a number of different uh, categories of people who were voting against this, who basically you know, were saying, we don't want to see this happen anymore. And it's, uh, it's led to basically a, a recalculation of how liberal is San Francisco really? And it turns out, of course, that the people who were solidly uh, democratic in terms of their support uh, for this progressive uh, politician who is, um, you know, has the the misfortune of being uh, d- having a, not just two but four uh, terrorist parents in terms of of their work for the Weather Underground uh, in the past. Uh, he, the reason that you saw that recall happen was not that white liberal voters turned on him. It was because of local pockets of of Asian communities and and others uh, who were fed up with the the results of his progressive policies uh, as it related uh, to the, uh, the the kind of, of response that you could see uh, playing out across the country in so many different blue cities where they have rolled back policies that would lead to people being incarcerated for to any great degree uh, under the auspices of uh, taking on systemic racism. Uh, Peggy Noonan writes today in the Wall Street Journal uh, about the kind of, of shock that progressives are experiencing when they see voters who they assume, these minority voters, would be along for the ride with all of their agenda items. That would, they would be you know, more than happy to go along with these uh, progressive appro- approaches to policy turning on them instead. Uh, she writes in part, the progressive can't understand why. He tells reporters the voters are in a bad mood because of inflation and housing costs. A final characteristic of progressive politicians is that they tend to be high IQ, stupid people. They are bright and well-educated, but can't comprehend the implications of policy. They don't understand that if an 18-year-old is repeatedly arrested for assaulting people on the street and repeatedly let go, his thought may not go in the direction of, what a gracious and merciful society I live in. I will do more to live up to it. It is more likely he will think, I can assault anyone and get away with it. They are afraid of me. Criminals calculate. Normal people know this and anticipate it. It is a great eccentricity of progressive politicians that they can't. Let's go to cut 15. I think that people feel their safety compromised. The problem that we have today is the results of many of the bad policies that over-criminalize communities without really looking for a path in order to create the reduction of crime, the prevention of crime, and putting communities in a better place. 
That is Los Angeles District Attorney George Gascon. He is one of a number of progressive DAs who've been elected across the country in recent years, backed in part by George Soros and progressives who want to see these policies changed. We talked before in the previous uh, segment about the issue of the, the mob, and we talked before that about the issue of the heckler's veto on campus. This is enabling a mob approach to the way that we live, a mob approach that allows for lawlessness to take place in the cities and for a degradation of order to take place in the way that we live. Who is the person supposed to turn to for support? Who are they supposed to look to in an environment in which criminals of of all manner are essentially able to get away with whatever they want and because of and because of the policies that have been put in place by progressives who essentially argue that to be opposed to them in this way is itself systemically racist or to be part of a systemically racist system. No one wants to be called a racist. But at the end of the day, if you're being confronted with a crime wave that is inhabiting your community, making it unsafe to walk on your streets, taking away the order that you had come to expect as an American and believe that you had the right to and deserved as a, as a citizen, then you will see the consequence of that. People will change their perspective, no matter their ideological loyalties, no matter if they think of themselves as being Democrats or thought of themselves as being part of that in the past. They will look to their interests as members of the community. They will understand that their priority has to be for their children, for the safety of their streets and their schools. And they're not going to go along with these wrong-headed progressive policies, even if they have been argued vociferously by the media, by the New York Times, by the 1619 Project, by progressive politicians, and by these DAs. Once those policies are put in place and people see what happens within their community, they take lessons from them. They apply them to their vote, and they change their minds. And in California, where they have the ability to recall these people, they are making their voices heard in a powerful way. If Democrats want to survive in coming elections, they will listen. I'm Ben Dominich, and you are listening to Fox Across America. I'm not Jimmy Fela, but I will be back with more right after this. It's America's Life Coach, Fox Across America with Jimmy Fallon. And we are back on Fox Across America. I'm your host for the day, Ben Dominich. Happy to have you listening, even though I am not Jimmy Fallon. And I'm also happy to be joined right now by Mike Gonzalez. He's a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, And he's talking to us uh, today about uh, a story that I think is uh, of increased importance in this time when we've seen so many people who have been part of this uh, demographic destiny conversation uh, shift away and have different priorities, as it turns out, as voters. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. Uh, thanks, Ben. It's uh, great to be on with you. 
I want to talk to you about this piece that you wrote at the Daily Signal uh, just yesterday, uh, which uh, looks into a Soros-backed media consortium that is attempting to have uh, an increased level of influence within the Spanish-speaking community on the radio. Tell me a little bit about this story and what you've learned about what's going on there. Yeah, they want to buy 18 stations with about 20 million listeners. That's a third uh, uh, of all the Americans that the Census Bureau denominates as Hispanic, but it's a much greater percentage of those who rely on Spanish language. Most, quote-unquote, Hispanics actually speak English. They They don't speak Spanish. So 20 million Spanish speakers, my estimate would be about half of all Spanish speakers. This is what the Soros-backed uh, media consortium, uh, which is linked to Black Lives Matter, uh, uh, by the way, uh, wants to purchase and own because they are uh, they they have they have they're explicitly saying that they don't want conservative voices on radio because they're afraid that the, these voters are leaving. Uh, they they you know Biden in the last Quinnipiac poll had a 24 percent support among Hispanics, which is very 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 low. Mm-hmm. You know, this is one of those things where. You see the top-down reaction from the left in a way that tries to basically skip past the priorities uh, that these communities may have, um, these Spanish-language communities in particular, when it comes to traditional values, when it comes to crime on the streets, when it comes to inflation and energy prices and the like, and basically just propagandize to them. That's something that I know you're familiar with within the the architecture of uh, the media and the way that so many uh, different programs, especially Univision, have targeted these audiences uh, by attempting to to skew them in in certain ways. But that really hasn't been successful, it turns out, for uh, for Democrats and for leftist politicians in recent years. Why is that? Uh, Because they they can't do anything about inflation. Because they cannot do anything about the supply uh, uh, line issues. They cannot do anything about the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. They, you know, they, all these things are all too glaring. Uh, you know, I hate you – know, I don't hate to say it, but I mean it, it kind of saddens me to say Biden has been a, a disaster. Mm-hmm. He's at 35 percent support overall according to Quinnipiac. Uh, so you can imagine uh, that, that he's not very popular at all. Uh, and Hispanics are reflecting that when they give them 24 percent support. What the left wants to do is they, doesn't, they don't have any solution to inflation or to foreign policy or, or to, supplies, uh, to supply lines. What they want to do is shut off debate. The, the, the left can never uh, exist uh, if there is a, a single voice that's speaking the truth. This is what this is about. You know, one of the things that was – fascinating to me in the aftermath of uh, the most recent election was the way that a lot of people who were shocked by the level of support that Republican candidates, including uh, President Trump, but also other candidates as well, got from Hispanic voters, uh, they responded to it by suggesting that it was all these conservative radio stations pushing, quote unquote, misinformation or disinformation. uh, And one, it was so fascinating to dig into 
you know, what their definition was of this, because as it turned out, a lot of that turned out to be uh, referring to Joe Biden's policies as being socialist or something like that. Uh, And yet in practice, upon, you know, coming into office, they've certainly been a lot further left, uh, whether you categorize them as socialist or not, than a lot of these same media folks were saying in advance of the election. Uh, Look, just in April, the the White House uh, revealed a a 25 uh, action plans throughout the administration that were really very far to the left. Uh, They all had to do with equity. Uh, And then it it, it emerged that Black Lives Matter took credit for that. The Black Lives Matter organization, the main one, uh, Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, announced that it had been helping the Biden team write the action plans even before, since before the administration took office, since December 2020, uh, the Black Lives Matter organization were founded by Marxists, not just Marxists, but fanatical Marxists. Mm-hmm. So to, to, to say that – I don't know if Biden himself is a socialist or not. I don't think he is. But his policies are being written by organizations created by Marxists. That is just a plain fact. To prevent Americans from learning that fact uh, would be – to, to, to censor the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, tell me a little bit about the BLM participants who are tied uh, to this, uh, you know, whether they're, you know, uh, officially part of it or not, you know, there clearly is, uh, you know, an, uh, aspects of this effort uh, that are tied to uh, some of the more radical members of the BLM movement. Tell us about that. Well, they, they, the consortium is called the Latino Media Network. In one of the two co-directors is Jess Morales Rocketo, which happens to be a, a longtime ally of Alicia Garza, uh, they, they, one of the main co-founders of Black Lives Matter, a Marxist herself. Uh, I'm not saying Rocketo is a Marxist. I, I have no idea. I had never heard of her until last week. Uh, but 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 uh, uh, Garza is. In Garza and Rocketo have a long-standing association. They. They are both uh, uh, leaders in the National Domestic Workers Alliance, a far-left group. They have both started uh, uh, organizations together. One of them is Supermajority, which is it mobilizes people to vote and support leftist causes. Uh, so Rocketo has a long history of, of uh, during uh, moments of riots, whether it's the 2014 Ferguson riot or the 2020 George Floyd riots, she tweeted in office support and told uh, Amer- uh, Latins, uh, Latinos to to support uh, to take leadership, follow the leadership of, of BLM. So that is who owns the who, who who is one of the directors of the of the the, the the consortium that is going to own these 18 stations if the FCC, FCC approves this. I am sure that Cuban Americans uh, and and two of these stations are in South Florida will be deeply offended by this, uh, given the support that BLM has given the Castro dictatorship uh, throughout the years, including last year when when uh, when Cubans demonstrated for, for for freedom, BLM supported the Communist Party. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I think is uh, so interesting about these developments is that you know the the left tends to uh, you know assume that people based on the color of their skin or uh, the way that uh, whatever box they check based on ethnicity that they uh, own their vote that they just assume automatically you know these people will vote for us and yet what we've seen especially most recently uh, you know in San Francisco with this recall of uh, this uh, Soros-backed prosecutor. That is that the people who are actually in these cities and in these environments, when they see those these policies put in place, 
they they question them and they they don't have the kind of liberal white guilt that makes them say, you know, oh, well, you know, if I question this policy, that must make me part of systemic racism or the like. Instead, they question them on the basis of what they see happening within their communities. Tell me a bit about that dynamic, because it seems to be, you know, a part and parcel of this, you know, that it's not just, you know, about Hispanic voters. It's about uh, Asian voters and other immigrant voters who are who are basically waking up to how these leftist policies are actually failing them and their communities once they're put in practice. Yeah, no, I mean, I think in this, uh, these voters are really the, the, the person who says the emperor has no clothes, because what they as the, as the Democratic Party has gone has become captured by its left, a left that is that has become obsessive about critical race theory and crit- a critical gender theory, uh, it, it has lost all reason. They've begun to to lose these voters because, you know, we had we used you saw we had a candidate for office, sorry, a candidate for an appointed an appointee of the administration uh, who was faced questioning in Congress two weeks ago, who said a man could could get pregnant and have an abortion. Now, that makes zero sense uh, to many people who come from Latin America, and they're just not going to really consider that as any, anything to do with fact. They're not, they don't want their children to be taught that they cannot succeed in this country, that they're victims. Nobody gets up in, in Mexico or Argentina and says, well, you know, uh, I'm going to emigrate to the United States so I can become a victim there. They want to be victors. They want to succeed. So all of these messages are just falling on deaf ears. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike, I, uh, before I let you go, let me ask you this. There, there's, this seems to be a critical um, battle. It seems to be something to me that could have you know, significant ramifications given the portion of the marketplace that you're talking about here. Uh, what should people be uh, saying to their local politicians, particularly if they're, you know, from a community that is served by, uh, the, you know, one of these talk radio stations uh, about uh, their concerns that uh, George Soros and BLM and other associates of them are going to take over uh, a conversation in a way to try to drive out conservative voices and propagandize uh, to their their fellow citizens? I think people should find out the facts for themselves. Uh, you know, go ahead and Google, uh, see if what I've been saying is true or not. Uh, and, and once you have made up your mind, uh, then act accordingly. Uh, you know, I, I can't go really any further than that. But we in this country do have many means to. That's one of the wonders of living in this country, is that that the, the politicians are accountable to us. So, so fi- find out the facts. Uh, and then act according to the facts. You make up your own, your, own, your own mind and act accordingly. Mike Gonzalez is a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. You can check out uh, his piece on this whole uh, Soros-backed media consortium at the daily at DailySignal.com. Thanks for joining me, Mike, on Fox Across America. I'm Ben Dominich. You are listening to Fox Across America. I am not Jimmy Fallon, but we will be back with more right after this. You're riding around with America's cabbie. Taxi! Taxi! You're hanging out with Jimmy Fallon on Fox Across America. And we're back on Fox Across America. I'm Ben Dominich, sitting in the chair for Jimmy Fallon today, who is out Riding across uh, a, uh, a river somewhere or a lake uh, on a jet ski, presumably 
wearing some form of clothing, but let's hope. Uh, I am uh, happy to be with you today and talking about what has been a pretty momentous week in terms of news developments, and uh, they all are really news developments that seem to me a lot more important and lasting uh, than the one that was made for TV from this January 6th committee, even though that's the thing that everyone else in the mainstream media, mainstream, corporate media, warped media, however you want to think about them, wants to talk about today. To me, I think we will remember this week uh, more for the development of the attempted assassination of Brett Kavanaugh, a Supreme Court justice who has obviously, you know, seen his family and home targeted now in an incredible way uh, in protests that have continued at the home of Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, And you're going to see, I think, uh, real ramifications from that, changes in the way that the court does business and changes in the way that people view the job of going and working on the Supreme Court, uh, given the level of threats involved. We're definitely going to remember that. We're going to remember the fact that this was another 40-year high when it came to inflation. We're going to remember uh, the the fact that it, it's costing us, you know, a hundred dollars and more to fill up our car when we go to the uh, go to the pump. Uh, and we're certainly, I think, going to remember this also as a moment when you saw the turn against progressive policies in blue cities really takes shape in the form of this really you know uh, surprising uh, recall of a, a Soros-backed politician, a prosecutor, Chesa Budin, in uh, San Francisco, uh, that even had leftists, you know, uh, waking up the next day and scratching their heads and saying, you know, wow, you know, we're too we're too far left for San Francisco. What does that really say about us? At least the intelligent ones uh, were uh, the people who were more dedicated to this personally, which includes uh, the likes of Kate Chatfield, who was uh, Bowden's uh, chief of staff, sent out tweets like this. Uh, In 30 months, we reduced the jail population by 38 percent. We reduced the San Francisco prison population by 35 percent. We stopped charging kids as adults and reduced the number of kids in jail by 50 percent. We have seen victims forgive and those who harmed atone, all while violent crime has gone down. We have already won. Of course, you can compare that uh, to the study released last year that found that half of the people released from jail before trial were accused of new crimes while they were free in San Francisco, something that obviously had a significant effect on the outcome that we saw uh, take place there. Look, across the country, we have seen the push backed by George Soros and his leftist buddies to elect these these progressive prosecutors who have engaged in what they determined, they described as criminal justice reform that targeted the consequences of systemic racism, uh, but that in reality have done enormous damage to the crime levels in these cities across the country, uh, especially you know, you know, in areas where you had seen uh, violent crime declining for decades. Uh, you've seen turnarounds. Uh, that's come under the leadership of Budin in uh, in San Francisco, George Gascon in Los Angeles, uh, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, Kim Fox in Chicago, and Kimberly Gardner in St. Louis, among others. These uh, uh, ramifications are not, uh, in, interestingly enough, confined uh, to these cities. They have spill-out effects, effects where crime basically starts to come out of the cities and into the suburbs uh, as these policies are put into place. And what have we seen in reaction to that? 
Well, we've seen a number of Americans uh, who traditionally are thought of as being part of the Democratic coalition break with them. They've gone against them. And that's what has led us to a point where people are suddenly shocked to see, oh, it's these liberal, white, uh, wealthy voters who are largely uh, insulated from the consequences of these decisions who've been convinced, whether they are subscribers to the views of of Ibram X. Kendi uh, or of Robin DiAngelo, of all the different anti-racist, quote-unquote, forces that inhabit their world, uh, that they need to do these sorts of things and and support these sorts of uh, politicians as an act of tithe back to the community, as an act of paying for indulgences for the past sins of their fathers. The consequences of that, as it turns out, has been to drive Asian voters, Hispanic voters, and other voting cohorts that Democrats think of as as automatically being part of their coalition out of their party. Now, that's been a great benefit to you know, the causes of conservatives and of, of people who want a tougher-on-crime approach to this point. But it's, not, it's important that Republicans and conservatives and those who are tough on crime who still remain with the, in the Democratic Party – offer an alternative as well, uh, because it's not just going to be up to the left's failure in order to meet the needs of these communities. We can't just point to the cities, see them burning, see people struggling and say, well, maybe you shouldn't live there because a lot of people have to live there. It's important to have policies that address their needs and don't just go into things assuming that nothing can be changed. I'm Ben Dominich. You're listening to Fox Across America. I'm not Jimmy Fallon, but I'll be back right after this. Live from everywhere USA, it's Fox Across America with Jimmy Fallon. And we're back on Fox Across America. I'm not Jimmy Fallon. I'm Ben Dominich. Uh, Happy to be with you for this third hour and happy to be joined by former Speaker of the House, uh, Newt Gingrich. Uh, Speaker Gingrich, thanks so much for uh, joining me today. I wanted to ask your uh, perspective, uh, first off, having served in the House as long as you did, on what we saw yesterday from this uh, January 6th committee and what they put forward. Well, I just uh, did a newsletter at uh, Gingrich360.com basically suggesting this was a Stalinist uh, public show trial that was pure propaganda. Uh, It was appalling. Uh, You know, I served for 20 years in the House, 16 in the minority, four as Speaker. This was not a congressional hearing. This was a TV advertisement for a one-sided view that was stunningly dishonest uh, and uh, just plain wrong. It was a collection of falsehoods delivered with arrogance and viciousness uh, and uh, reminded me that there are a lot of people who believe that we are deplorable. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has said earlier today that uh, she didn't want to pass the bill to protect the justice of the Supreme Court because they weren't really in danger. And I realized watching last night, you know, from their standpoint, uh, we're not worthy of being protected. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, I thought in particular, and I say this regretfully because I've known the family for so long, but I thought Liz Cheney's one comment about condemning as dishonorable the Republicans who disagreed with her uh, was such a stunning level of arrogance 
that, uh, you know, it was just amazing. I mean, mm-hmm. who is she to judge all of the different people who don't agree with her and then say that they, you know, they will have, they will have dishonored the rest of their life. You I know, somehow don't think of uh, somebody who has now become a fellow traveler for the Pelosi dictatorship uh, is in a very good position to lecture the rest of us. They turned to a former president of ABC News uh, to produce these hearings, and that resulted in this oddity of having, you know, uh, a script and teleprompters, something that I'm not used to seeing within uh, a congressional hearing. And, and you did have that uh, statement from uh, Liz Cheney coming as part of her uh, nearly 36 minutes of, of comments uh, on her version of uh, and perspective on January 6th. Just tell me, you know, if this was propaganda, do you believe that it is going to have an effect? Or is it something that no, is merely no. designed? No, first of all, <laughs> it's badly done propaganda. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when, the American, when the American people watch a dog and pony show and they watch clips and they know they're I – mean, you know, these folks are counting on a level of stupidity that is really an insult to the average American. I mean, you show me 40 seconds of um, something that Ivanka Trump said, and I don't get to see anything else she said. Uh, you show me about 70 seconds of something her husband, Jared Kushner, said. I don't get to see anything else they said. You have this very sympathetic policewoman, and I certainly think that she was frightened and that, that she felt uh, courageously that she was doing her job. Nobody asked the question, uh, which um, we've gotten clearly uh, from John Solomon and others, a, tr- a, a line, a timeline of how often they were offered National Guard. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cheney herself, and I thought this was one of the most telling moments of the whole hearing and blew up most of their case. She said uh, that they they had known in advance for days from intelligence sources that there were people who wanted to cause trouble. Well, first of all, that sort of eliminates the argument that it was Donald Trump's speech, because these people knew for days. Second, it raises the question, if you knew for days that these people were coming, how could you be so totally, utterly incompetent to not protect the Capitol? Remember, I I am a former Speaker of the House, and I can guarantee you, had we known this was coming, we would have had so much force available that no one would have gotten within a mile of the Capitol. Mm-hmm. And Nancy Pelosi, I, I don't know if she wanted it to happen, if she was hoping that they would have this excuse. I mean, it's hard to know exactly what's going on uh, in what is clearly a dictatorship. Uh, but it, it, but this was just crazy. There was, no, there was no reason that young woman should have found herself outnumbered and found herself without reinforcements. Mm-hmm. The opposite should have been true. There should have been more people representing security than there were representing bad intent, and they should have simply drowned them, and they should never have gotten close to the Capitol. So that's an example where you just have to look at it and think, you know, how stupid do these people think we are? Mm -hmm. The optics of this happening the same week that we saw this targeting of Justice Kavanaugh and the continued protests that happened just yesterday in front of the home of of Justice Barrett and her family, it it just really does create the sense that this is a game to them and that they do want to enable the heckler's veto, enable the mob in so many different ways, as we saw during the summer of Floyd. Well, I think that's right. And remember, the the left is essentially a cult. It's a secular religion. Uh, and from their standpoint, uh, all of us who are not part of the cult 
are the other, to use an anthropology term. We're not really humans. We're, we're simply targets of their anger. And, and, and uh, if they hurt us, it doesn't matter. Uh, that's why you could have a summer of riots. You could have people being killed. Remember the retired policeman who, the police captain in St. Louis who was killed trying to protect innocent people. Uh, but that was all right mm-hmm. because he was part of the other. Uh, from from their standpoint, you know, we're all incorrigibles. And since we're incorrigibles, we're not really completely human. I mean, I think Pelosi's position right now is, is so outrageously insensitive. I think the Biden White House, which which understands the frustration of the people who are worried about Roe versus Wade, and therefore it understands why they would break the law. Remember, they're breaking at least two federal laws that are felonies. So if you were at the Capitol, you get it, you're, you're getting charged with a misdemeanor for trespass. These people who are out in front of the justices' homes are engaged in felonies that have jail time that could be a long time. And, of course, you have a totally political attorney general who is refusing to enforce the law. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the situation that, you know, obviously is disturbing to a lot of us who care about the, the security of the court in order to come to this decision. And obviously this follows on the leak uh, that was so disturbing to see, uh, uh, something that I think will be felt in terms of changing the court for the foreseeable future. Just answer me this before uh, I have to let you go. Uh, what would you be doing as a member of Congress right now to push back against this uh, you know, completely irresponsible act on the part of, of the uh, leadership of the House, which is not taking up this unanimously passed Senate measure in order to try to protect these justices? I would be using every parliamentary tool to, to stop the House in its tracks. And I would be targeting every marginal Democrat with advertising in their district, asking how they can possibly allow this to go on. How, how, how can they possibly fail to protect U.S. Supreme Court justices? And I'd go at every single person. There are at least 40 Democrats now who are in trouble for reelection. And I'd have ads in every one of those districts asking, forget Pelosi. I'd say, how can you tolerate this? You have the vote to go back and force Pelosi to act like a decent human being. And if you aren't doing it, then frankly, you're part of the same gang. Mm-hmm. Last question for you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, this wave that's coming in November, you think it'll be bigger than 94? Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, remember, 90, we started a much lower base. So we gained 53 seats. Uh, John Boehner in 2010 gained 64. They're already so much stronger than we were that if they gain 35, they'll be the highest Republican majority since since 1920. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think they're going to be somewhere between 25 and 70. I mean, people people should not underestimate the scale of pain in the country. Uh, I mean, uh, we, we just did a survey that said, you know, uh, how important is it um, to get back to the America that works? And 87 percent of the country thinks that things aren't working and that it's important to get back to an America that works. Not not right wing, not right, left wing, just, you know, you can buy gasoline and you can find baby formula <laughs> and you can go grocery shopping and you don't have a border that's overrun with drug dealers and, and, and criminals. What what an amazing what an amazing uh, way of changing the country back to something that just works. Uh, Speaker Gingrich, yep. thank you so much for taking the thank time you. to join me today. 
You are listening to Fox Across America with Jimmy Fela. I am not Jimmy Fela. I'm Ben Dominich. But we'll be back with more right after this. The show not afraid to call out both sides of the aisle. He's the other side's worst nightmare. This is Fox Across America with Jimmy Fela. And we're back on Fox Across America. I'm your host for the day, Ben Dominich. And I'm happy to be joined by Dave Smith, who you can follow on Twitter at Comic Dave Smith. He's the host of Heart of the Problem podcast. Uh, Dave, I want to talk to you in a moment in which we are seeing the enabling, it feels like, of an incredible level of, of animosity toward free speech and freedom of thought in a lot of different environments. We had uh, Ilya Shapiro, formerly of the Cato Institute, formerly of Georgetown, uh, on uh, earlier in the show to talk about his predicament. But it really does seem like the left is is entirely in favor in America right now of enabling these mobs to shut down opinion, as we've seen marching in front of the homes of Supreme Court justices and their families this week. Yeah, how how are you, Ben? It's uh, it's it's pretty wild, and and of course it's not it's not just the left as much as it is all the power centers mm-hmm. in America, mm-hmm. from corporate power centers to government power centers to academia to Hollywood. It's and and of course outside of with the exception of Fox News, I suppose the entire corporate press. It's certainly they use a lot of leftist language. Um, this kind of very specific critical race theory leftist language. But this, what you're seeing is all of the power centers in the United States of America move toward true totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. Like you're like right out of the totalitarian playbook, not just that there are certain things you're not allowed to do. You're not allowed to think freely. Even some of the most basic thoughts, you know, Boys are boys and girls are girls. Something like that is now considered. <laughs> oh, no. You, oh, help. I'm being oppressed even right now by comic Dave Smith. On uh, you, you just heard it yourself. Look, the this is something that I think, and it's so true what you're saying, that a lot of Americans feel powerless to push back against. I know that you believe in freedom of thought. You believe in pushing back against this type of, of totalitarian oppression of people uh, to express themselves. How do we do that in a way that can actually be sustained, you know, given that it's just so exhausting and there seem to be so many institutions that are dedicated toward crushing that freedom of thought every day? Well, I mean, I think that the one tool that Americans have left are the American people. And that's pretty much all we have. We don't really have any institutions, um, we do, at least none with a, a whole lot of power. I suppose you could say in a, in a few examples in, in 2020, 2021, there were a couple state governments that did a pretty good job, like most notably Florida, South Dakota, did a good job at resisting the, the COVID regime. But the big thing that people who love freedom have going for them is that the vast majority of the American people hate this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of our best hope is to be able to tap into that. It, it's difficult when they're even silencing people on social media and stuff like that. Uh, I'm still very hopeful that Elon Musk ends up buying Twitter and making that a free speech platform, but who knows what's going to happen there. But um, but I think that really this is this is why there's such a big populist moment in America right now is because the last tool that we have is to work up the people to say, hey, who actually wants to live in this society? Who actually wants to live in a society where, like, little kids have to wear masks and be propagandized at school to hate their parents and adults are not allowed to think? Mm -hmm. How popular is that? 
Not very. I mean, like, you know, like, like Coca-Cola and Disney and Joe Biden might like it, but not that many other people do, as it turns out. You know, one of the big shifts that happened, obviously, on this is that it used to be in the profit incentive to reach all people, to, to maximize the, co- the consumer that you could reach when it came to your product. And yet now there seems to be much more interest in corporate America in narrow casting, basically saying, you know, and you see a lot of this, you know, this is Pride Month after all, all of these different uh, corporations basically virtue signaling in ways that, you know, you never really expected to have these products have to have an opinion on certain things one way or the other. Uh, From your perspective, what do we do to get back to the point where those uh, corporations are interested in capitalism, in understanding the you know that Republicans buy sneakers too, as opposed to engaging in this constant virtue signaling and basically picking sides whenever a state that they're active in uh, takes on some direction uh, when it comes to policy that people within their HR department or their comms department don't like. Well, I, so from my perspective, if we want to get back to functioning capitalism, we have to get back to capitalism. And I think these two things are very related, like the economics of it and the social the reality that we live in. So, look, if you just look, say, in the year 2020, um, the market really wasn't dictating what businesses succeeded. It was the government. The government was deciding who was shut down and who was getting bailed out it was all throughout the economy. This was all dictated by the government. And, of course, if you look at the the kind of money printing spree that we've been on, who gets their hands on the money? This is kind of really actually what is dictating the market now. So you have big corporations that aren't necessarily playing to the the consumers. They're more interested in playing to the powerful. And then on top of that, you have this whole – I mean all of these ideas come out of the whole university system, which is a huge – government scheme, a huge bubble. No, This is why everyone's saying now they need to be bailed out on their student loans, because no one can actually afford these prices that are paid to colleges. And the only reason why 17 and 18-year-olds are being given loans is because they're all given by the government. Mm. At this point, all of them are given by the government. They used to just be guaranteed by the government, but since Obama, they're just straight-up government loans. So basically what we need is to smash this entire system. We need a com- we need to completely get the government out of the, the business of supporting the university system System, remove the government and make it as local as possible with their influence on K through 12. And we need drastic reductions in the size and scope of government. Force these companies to go back to playing to their consumers, the American people, rather than the powerful and the well-connected, which is what we have right now. Dave, quickly, I know that you're part of, of a real shift in the Libertarian Party in America, one that has really taken it over. Is it going to be more active within this space going forward, focused on these issues of getting capitalists back to being capitalists? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm a part of a group that's known as the Mises Caucus, and we basically just took over the entire Libertarian Party and overthrew the the whole old uh, establishment there. The, The Libertarian Party has a lot of great people in it, people who are just all about free markets and sound money and non-interventionist foreign policy and stuff like that. But the leadership has been pretty terrible for the last few years. And of course, they were preaching a lot of this same woke insanity. Mm -hmm. I think the Libertarian Party is going to be a force going forward. We've shaken off all of this woke craziness, and we're back to just being the party of people who believe in strict limits on government, 
believe in free markets and believe in a peaceful society. So I'm very excited about that. Check us out at the Libertarian Party. Well, we certainly need that argument to be made uh, in this moment uh, to a much louder degree, and I appreciate uh, you making it every day. You can follow uh, Dave Smith on Twitter, at Comic Dave Smith. I'm Ben Dominich. You are listening to Fox Across America. Uh, I'm not Jimmy Fela, but I have to say this has been an amazing experience for me, even without being Jimmy Fela, uh, even surrounded by this accoutrements of his that have been left behind, uh, all of the different the toys, this Millennium Falcon, uh, and uh, the various detritus of uh, an adult who really is a child at heart. Jimmy Fela is not me. I am Ben Dominich. We'll be back with more of Fox Across America right after this. reality with a bit of insanity it's fox across america with jimmy Fallon, and we're back on fox across america i am not jimmy Fallon. i'm your host for the day ben dominich and i am happy to be joined by amber athey who you can follow on twitter at amber underscore athey uh, she is the washington editor at the spectator and host of unfit to print amber thanks so much for taking the time to join me today of course. Thanks for having me, Ben. I want to talk to you about a couple of different things, but first off, we got to talk about uh, the January 6th scene that played out uh, last night. Uh, I'm curious as to your perspective on how these uh, committee hearings are going to go in terms of uh, the approach that they're using now, trying to turn this basically into a, a primetime show that people will tune into uh, and pay attention to in driving the narrative going forward. Well, it was clear from the beginning of just the inception of the January 6th committee that this was all intended to be a show trial because Nancy Pelosi decided to have veto power over which Republicans would even be allowed on the committee in the first place. And then the Republicans who were allowed were not going to be allowed the same level of subpoena power. So they would not even be able to investigate things like why did Nancy Pelosi not allow Donald Trump to call in the National Guard for the couple of days before the January 6th rally that he was supposed to be holding? What was the deal with videos showing Capitol Police officers potentially propping doors open? And the list goes on and on. So it was quite clear that they were intending this to have a particular outcome. This was a conclusion that was leading to an investigation, not the other way around. So now we're seeing that they haven't been satisfied, I, I think, with the results of that investigation, which ultimately is trying to link everything that happened at the Capitol in terms of the riot to Donald Trump. So now they're going to go directly to the public and have these primetime hearings. But the American people are, frankly, over this. This happened a year and a half ago. It is not even on the top 20 list of issues for voters. And the ratings last night reflected that. They were significantly down for the broadcast networks, even on a non-primetime newscast. If you compare it to, for example, the 5 or 6 p.m. news hour, the ratings were about half as high. Mm -hmm. You know, Amber, this is something that obviously they brought in, you know, outside forces to help them with in the form of former ABC News president uh, James Golston. And uh, this was intended to be more highly produced. Do you think this is a situation where, you know, the problem is uh, that people just don't believe the, the narrative that this was ever really going to be serious, that because of the, all the different factors you mentioned, 
uh, it came across instead as a political indictment instead of any attempt to prove something legally. Yeah, I think that's definitely a huge part of it. Um, I mean, I think everyone kind of had a similar view on this. And when I say everyone, I mean people outside of the D.C. bubble, which is that the violence that took place that day was bad. But trying to spin this into a larger narrative about the former president being an insurrectionist who tried to um, overthrow the duly elected president, Joe Biden, and attempt a coup never really resonated with people. And so there is this sense of the left once again going too far and trying to turn what was essentially a blip into um, a larger indictment of the right in general. And it especially doesn't ring true when just a few months prior, maybe six, seven months prior to January 6th, the left was endorsing a summer of riots and helping to contribute to bail funds like the uh, vice president did in Minneapolis to bail out people who were rioting and causing violence in our great cities. Um, so that is just that dichotomy, I think, really led people to believe that the left was using this for political purposes. It also had the unfortunate contrast with the reaction to uh, uh, the news regarding the targeting of Justice Kavanaugh and his family from Speaker Nancy Pelosi, uh, who uh, was just, you know, seemed to be dismissing the idea that there was anything uh, really untoward about what was happening, saying, in fact, you know, uh, just the other day that no one was in danger um, and and basically diminishing uh, what seems to have been, you know, an unprecedented threat in so many respects, uh, a threat that's been continuing all this week, uh, including uh, protests in front of the home of Justice Amy Coney Barrett just yesterday. Tell me about the nature of these targeting uh, attempts by the left, because they seem to want to have it both ways. They seem to want to basically say, this isn't going to be dangerous. This No one's actually in danger. And then sh- someone shows up uh, with an actual gun. Someone shows up with weapons, with you know the intent of doing something as uh, they admitted to uh, that would have been absolutely heinous and horrible. And it ends up at the bottom of the pages of the New York Times. They pretend like it didn't even happen. Yes, and when you look at the way they talk about January 6th, just going back to that for a second, when you know Trump was having this rally, they basically accused him of inciting violence at the rally because he told people to fight, which is a, a normal political term that people use all the time. But then when you have Chuck Schumer saying that Brett Kavanaugh has to pay, they have to make him pay, which doesn't even make sense because he— is on a lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court, and you have the White House condoning protests outside of the justices' homes, which by all counts, by all measures, are illegal and not peaceful the way the White House claimed, then they want to say that they had nothing to do with this wacko coming to Brett Kavanaugh's house and saying that he wanted to kill him because he was upset over the leaked Roe v. Wade decision. So they constantly try to have it both ways, and it's It's crazy to hear their reaction now where the White House, the deputy press secretary, Andrew Bates, even tried to lie directly to the American people about what Jen Psaki had said. He posted the transcript of her remarks saying the president, quote, certainly encourages people to protest outside of the justices' homes and somehow insisted that she said the opposite. So I feel like they're gaslighting the American people at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing that was that added to this, from my perspective, was the comments that came from the president himself on Jimmy Kimmel. You know, you easily could have had 
a, a very positive moment there of him just saying, look, this is unacceptable. Instead, he says, you know, well, if they if they continue on this passage, there'll be many revolutions to vote these people out of office. Uh, in terms of the response that we've gotten from Joe Biden, this seems to be the last nail in the coffin of the idea that he's going to be a uniter in any way, shape or form during his presidency. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think that that nickname or that moniker that the media tried to give to him on the campaign trail was even true at that time, because he had a long history of speaking very poorly of his political opponents, regardless of this sort of perception of him being a bipartisan unifier. But it's been even worse since he took office. Um, I mean, if we go back to the way he talked about the unvaccinated and promising them that they were going to have a winter of severe death and illness, or the way that he continues to invoke the former president as somehow, um, you know, an inciter of violence who controls the entire Republican Party. And then these recent comments about the protests of the Supreme Court justices and his response in particular to the attempted assassination of Brett Kavanaugh. This is a guy who speaks about his political opponents more aggressively than some members of the squad. Um, So the idea that he is a unifier in chief is absolutely ridiculous. And I don't think was ever really based in reality. That was something that the media created to try to make him seem like a palatable alternative to a guy who tweeted uh, things that they didn't like. Yeah, I think he really was, it turns out, the, the he wants to put you back in chains guy uh, more than anything else all along. Uh, you know, this, this has been a very bizarre week in Washington for a lot of different reasons, but I want to take you out of there for a moment to look at what happened in San Francisco where you saw the recall of uh, Chesa Budin, you know, a progressive po- uh, prosecutor who had been backed by George Soros and a lot of progressive forces alongside, you know, a number of other prosecutors who've been elected in blue cities across the country. That election saw a real pushback against progressive policies on crime uh, coming from a number of, of diverse Asian communities even as uh, the progressive was being supported by leftists who were wealthier and white, according to the demographics and the, and the maps in question. Is this a situation where the left made a calculation in order to appeal to those type of suburban voters during the Trump era, people who were particularly offended uh, by those tweets and by his approach uh, to speaking about his political foes and others? And basically, they are now left with a coalition that's very different from potentially the one they had hoped for decades ago uh, That when they were promising demographic destiny. Yeah, I think that's a good read on the situation. Um, I think when Trump was in office, they really tried to be the opposition party, and they kind of put in people without really thinking about how that would affect the political landscape writ large. I mean, we saw a similar scenario where I live in Arlington, Virginia, in Fairfax and Loudoun counties, where they have these school board members and and local prosecutors who have um, either tried to implement ideas in schools that parents are are really disturbed by, whether that's CRT or woke gender ideology. And then you have the prosecutors who are refusing to enforce violent crime. And what is the result? We see an uptick in murders, carjackings, uh, smash and grabs, et cetera, and all of these these other crimes throughout the area. And that is starting to have a wave of backlash across the country. And it's one thing for that to happen in Virginia, for people to recall school board members or vote out these vote prosecutors. But for that to happen in San Francisco, of all places, is a real sign that 
the left uh, has really gone too far, and this plan for them to take over local judicial systems is going to start to have a wave of opposition, and I'm excited to see that. At the same time, though, I don't, I'm not too optimistic because you also see candidates like Connor Lamb lose in Pennsylvania. So clearly the moderate Democratic, the moderate wing of the Democratic Party is not having quite the resurgence that many people would hope. And these progressives might be being voted out on the local level, but nationally the party is still really beholden to those really radical sects. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, uh, and close out on this because you are the Washington editor. You had the perspective, I'm sure, of having your Twitter feed full of responses to this uh, Washington Post uh, infighting that was playing out uh, because uh, it, nothing is more important to journalists than themselves. Uh, and right. so uh, so tell me a little bit of, of your take on this situation, um, which uh, ultimately saw uh, a, a uh, female reporter there who had previously complained uh, about her colleagues leave the paper. Well, I think what happened here is that Felicia Sanmez, the woman you just mentioned, has had a long-standing grudge against the Washington Post because they had removed her from covering sexual misconduct stories because she had publicly essentially identified herself as an activist um, like the ones you would see with the Me Too movement, and they were worried about her ability to be objective on the beat. And ever since then, she's actually filed a lawsuit against the paper. She's publicly griped about her colleagues, her bosses, and the organization itself multiple times. And the fact that she, after she complained about this joke retweet from Dave Weigel, her colleague, it almost seemed like she was trying to get fired. Mm-hmm. She just kept going for five, six days straight. And my my guess here is that her motivation was she has this lawsuit in the works against the Washington Post. It doesn't seem to be going well. She's currently appealing the first judge's decision. And maybe if she gets fired, she has a case that the Washington Post uh, was, was uh, there was retribution there. Mm-hmm for her filing that lawsuit in the first place. So I think maybe she was hoping this would help her legal case because I don't understand why any other sane person would be going on the tangent that she did on her social media this past week. You know, these the way these journalists play these games uh, so publicly, uh, I mean, it's really crazy to see it play out, uh, even when it comes from elder millennials uh, or or if they even qualify as that anymore, uh, like like Taylor Lorenz and others who seem to want to make drama with, with every – Every little workplace gripe. Uh, Amber Athey, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. She's the Washington editor at The Spectator and host of Unfit to Print if you want to hear more of her take on the Washington Post drama and things like that. I'm Ben Dominich. We will be back with more of Fox Across America right after this. It's the show that never hits the books. I love the poorly educated. You're listening to Fox Across America with Jimmy Fallon. And we're back on Fox Across America. I am your host. I'm not Jimmy Fela. I'm Ben Dominich. And it's been a pleasure to be with you today talking about so many things that happened in a big news week uh, with a lot of stories coming out of Washington and from across the country. I wanted to take a call before we have to finish up here from William in Tyler, Texas. William, thanks so much for taking the time to call the show. Okay. Yeah, thanks, Ben. I wanted to ask the question quickly. Where is the left coming from? Well, look at their heroes. Uh, Saul Alinsky, Rules for Radicals, he dedicated it, the epigraph to Lucifer, the first rebel. And then he said, cause confusion, fear, and retreat. The first step is disorganization. Bait your opponent. Then be up Skinner beyond freedom and dignity. If you'll give up your freedom and dignity, we'll build a new world. 
And I will tell you as a clinician, I did a doctorate with many of these people. I disagreed with them. They're intelligent people. Many are unhappy. Uh, They are angry. And I would say they have often projected their problems and unhappiness onto others in their lives. You know, William, I I think that's a very good point. And one of the things that I think we see is that the conflict between uh, the left's attitude toward their own lives, uh, in in the case of, uh, you know, particularly, I would say, wealthy white liberal voters who've been, uh, you know, enlisted into the Democratic coalition from suburbs across America, being told that they are part of a uh, systemically racist system, one that has uh, been, you know, of, of great detriment to uh, minorities and others within American society uh, going back, you know, not just decades but centuries. Uh, that's a horrible thing to hear from from anybody about yourself, your family, your past, etc. Uh, and I think that that kind of self-hating approach as an American uh, is one that's going to lead you into all sorts of negative corners, things that are, are just not going to work out for you uh, if you uh, approach policy from that perspective. Uh, I shared a quote with you earlier from uh, the playwright David Mamet from his latest book, Recessional. The priests of our new idolatry are the politicians and their non-governmental like who have discovered the old secret of power gained through the fear of the mob. To me, this is the biggest dynamic that describes what's happening in America today, which is that beholden to uh, these various views, uh, influenced by a mob, uh, whether it's the hecklers uh, on campus, whether it is the people marching in front of these Supreme Court justices' houses, whether it is the people who were setting fire to things and being told that was just fine, it was just an expression of, of rage that was justifiable uh, during the quote-unquote summer of, lo- of love following Uh, George Floyd's death, it really did, I think, change the mindset of the left in America. And I hope that it's something that is a temporary change as opposed to a long-term one. We need to be able to live with each other in this American society, to view each other uh, not as foes, not as enemies, but as fellow citizens. And that while we do battle within the ideological space, while we may disagree about the politicians that we vote for or the causes that we march for, that at the end we are still Americans and we can view our neighbors not through a lens of uh, division or viewing them you know, as, as the servants of, of evil practice, uh, but instead as, as people who we can adjudicate these issues with uh, in the field of the fray that is American politics. We can't give in to the temptation uh, to view ourselves through this self-hating lens that the left has adopted in this moment and that they have used to such a negative effect on American society and our politics. It's been a pleasure to join you today from Fox Studios in New York City uh, to sit in for Jimmy Fallon on Fox Across America. I'm Ben Domenech. I hope to see you again. I hope to talk to talk with you again, and thank you so much for listening today. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.